Hello and welcome. Uh, how many of us have tried to map our face on a short clip with an app such as Reface or a fake app? We can see that artificially intelligent face swap videos known as deep fakes are more sophisticated and accessible than ever. To talk about this AI technology phenomenon, its possible impact, the influence of maybe social media and at large how the media of photography is evolving, I'm absolutely delighted to have the multimedia artist and pioneer technologist Tamiko Thiel and John Uriarte, digital curator at the Photography Gallery for the project Lend Me Your Face, Go Fake Yourself currently on view at the Photographer's Gallery until 17th of March. So just a quick highlight on your extended biographies to both of you. Graduated from Stanford University as a design engineer, Tamiko Thiel also studied and worked at MIT AI Lab Startup Thinking Machine Corp that initiated the Connection Machine 1, or known as CM1, which was the most advanced computer of its generation, leading the way towards artificial intelligence. Then Tamiko decided uh, for our greater good to merge a promising engineer career with the arts. So Tamiko works in a variety of media, ranging from supercomputers to digital prints, time-based videos to interactive 3D with all the spectrum of XR tools in your artworks and installation. For the current project, Lend Me Your Face, you use an open source deepfake neural network framework. Let's go to John. Uh, John Uriart is the curator of digital programs at the Photographer's Gallery. As a photographer uh, fee curator, John took part in many prestigious festivals and exhibitions. I'm only going to name a few. You have Get So Photo International Image Festival. The photo Collectania, Dune, and most recently Le Chateau d'Eau in, in France. John is also a photography tutor at IDEP, an essay writer, and also a researcher at Macbeth Studio Center. He founded the Photo Book Club Barcelona and co founded Wide Photo. So let's dive into the world of high tech selfies and deep fakes uh, with uh, you two. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, you for, thank you for having us. Well, thank you for this tutorial. It's pretty easy to uh, upload and uh, what is uh, fantastic to discover is that uh, the new technologies are so fast and so easy to use. Well, the project Lend Me Your Face, Go Fake Yourself, it's a participative project and I call it bilateral because what I mean is that not only the lenders, the people who are graciously lending their face play the game with you, but uh, you as well, Tamir play with the people's expectations. So um, when does the, the participant realize that uh, you're suddenly playing with them? I, I think a lot of people realize that when all of a sudden they uh, see themselves mimicking someone who they don't like. And a lot of people have said, well, can I choose who I get to be or who I get to mimic? And I'm going, no, that's the whole part of the, the project. And that's also 
the reason why I think it's really interesting to use a software that's that's not perfect, so that you can also see more of what's happening. And uh, you know, if, uh, there's a lot of deep fakes out there that are really perfect, and you know, I can't tell the difference between them and and the original with Obama or with Mark Zuckerberg or so. But the interesting thing about the software that we're using is that it doesn't rely on hours and hours and hours of video of you in order to animate your face. It only needs one photograph. And as you, you saw, that was uh, the video was in real time. So it's really less than a minute before we can get you your first deep fake if, if there's you know, no one else in the queue. So for, for me, the whole thing is not not the perfection of it and, and not saying, look what we can do if we take all the time in the world and have all the material in the world, but look what we can do with you personally. And the fact that you are uploading the image yourself means that you're also, you're giving us permission to generate these deep fakes. So that immediately makes you sort of culpable. You're involved emotionally in a way that you're not if you see a deep fake of some politician or some celebrity. So that was the aspect that really interested me was this personal connection. And, uh, you know, if we, had, if we had been able to show it publicly at the gallery on the media wall of the photographer's gallery, uh, which we can't because of the COVID lockdown, then you would have also seen your face being shown publicly as being as mimicking the words of this public figure who you may or may not support and saying words that you may or may not support. So it's this sort of stealing of your identity, stealing of the self, because, you know, the expressions of your face are really, uh, as I've written, the most intimate part of the self in a lot of ways, but also the part that's at this point is the easiest to steal and manipulate. So it's this personal involvement uh, and being able to get it so quickly and getting so uh, such a quick feedback that, uh, that I think is really the interesting part of the project to me and that also uh, emotionally grabs participants the most strongly. Thank you. <laughs> How do you select the original footage? How did you pick it? Oh, the, this is all taken from the internet. Uh, I mean, I could go into archives and was actually looking at that also. But um, I, I decided, you know, the first version I did, um, it was around September or so. And when the first version of this opened, of course, uh, for me as an American citizen, we were coming up on the November election and the big question, will we be able to get Trump out of office? And so, so I'm, you know, also in looking for ways to really get people personally involved, I was looking for figures who cause strong emotions, either positive or negative. And of course, you know, there's, as we found out, there are 70 million people who in the US who like Trump a whole lot. And there's 77 million liked Biden uh, better, you know, having Trump in there and Obama, uh, who, you know, still ha carries a lot of positive emotion for a lot of us. Uh, uh, Greta uh, Thunberg, who, um, who, you know, I really think is uh, doing really amazing things that no one else mobilizing the world in a way no one else has been able to do. And then Angela Merkel, who has been guiding Germany where I've been living for decades at this point. Uh, and she's being able to uh, guide the country through a lot of crises in a very calm and deliberate way, which is really, for me, the opposite of, of what Trump was doing with, with the USA. So, so they were people who 
spoke very strongly to me, either positively or negative, and where I thought I would get a strong resonance, you know, to, to show it either in Germany where I live or in the US where I come from. And then, of course, when I got the um, invitation from, from John to show at the Photographer's Gallery in London, and I thought, well... <laughs> It's now after the U.S. elections, for one thing, and I really don't want to see Trump anymore. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I talked to, to John about uh, what sort of figures uh, are, are of emotional resonance with larger audience in Great Britain. And then, of course, used my own personal preferences also. So you say, see Greta Thunberg again, and then her, her British counterpart, David Attenborough, and then... Um, <laughs> and then Boris Johnson, who I must say produces the best <laughs> fakes of anyone else that we've used. And then the, the Queen, who for me was really a, a counterpart, just like Obama and Trump were counterparts, then the Queen and Boris Johnson are a little bit of counterparts in, in terms of their, their public personalities. Um, and I thought maybe the, the Queen would be a little bit too boring. But compared to to the uh, sort of dramatic urgency of the other three, she was so wonderfully calming and saying, we shall meet again. And even, even the very subtle movements of her face and her intonation conveyed in, in the deepfakes a surprising amount of information, if you will, uh, conveyed a surprising amount of content. So I thought she was a wonderful foil to the other more sort of <laughs> dramatic and, and uh, jiggly. It is very much a, a personal choice, um, but, but really also trying to uh, find some people who you would feel comfortable uh, mimicking, uh, no matter what side of the fence you sit on, and some other people who you might be very uncomfortable mimicking. <laughs> and that is a very conscious choice to pr uh, produce sort of a positive and a negative reaction in the same person, regardless of what part of the political spectrum they came from. Yeah, I guess that uh, having a variety of, of expressions and also a variety of, I would say, political views was quite important because in this uh, idea of of embodying someone, uh, it's it's good for the for the project to have someone who who might think similar to you and someone else who might similar just opposite of your like uh, political views and also even your like way of 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 expressing. So you can see how your like uh, this um, algorithm is taking over your own body or face in this case and, and way of speech. And, uh, and also how it's faking your, your political views uh, with, uh, with the message that they send. So, yeah, I guess that matter, like the choosing is, is yes, to have this variety of, of, of people. I think as an artist, I, I'm very context-driven. I very often react to the specific context, whether that's a, uh, a location, um, you know, whether that's really like, you know, one place in the city or whether that's the context more of a, of a country as it, as it is in this case. Uh, and also I must say that uh, it depends on being able to find, uh, find material online that fits. You know, in this, um, you know, with this um, neural network, we have a specific data set uh, that, um, that the researcher used called Vox Celeb. And they were uh, specifically, they were gleaned from uh, the internet, but they were interviews with celebrities and interviews are taken 
mostly straight on. The person is looking directly into the camera. And that's why it works best if you upload that sort of image. And when I was um, looking for uh, videos that I could use to drive the deep fakes, then in the first instance, uh, I, I really wanted to use Mac's and I really wanted to use Obama. And Obama, I found out also, he's, he'll talk here, and then he'll talk there. And every time he moves his head, when he's looking straight ahead, his eyes are closed, and he only opens his <laughs> eyes when he's looking up in the corner. And it made it really hard. So, um, so it does depend on finding good uh, video of, of a person and good video where they're saying something interesting. So, for instance, I was looking at uh, Martin Luther King. I, I had a dream um, in, in the first instance. And uh, one thing is that, uh, um, you know, the quality is low from that era. And they would also often cut to the crowd. And then you get into other things like uh, when he's saying, you know, I have a dream that, you know, my daughters will not be judged by the color of the skin. And then, you know, in this time of... <laughs> Trump's white supremacy, if you have a white person saying that, then all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're throwing yourself in the, in the, you know, in the white supremacist camp. So it's, it gets, uh, it's, it's really interesting when you say, okay, this is going to be for a wide distribution and you want all sorts of people to be using it. And, and then you start thinking about, okay, well, how does that come over at this particular time in the political situation that you are in right now. And of course, you know, that varies over time, that varies over place, but it's something that, you know, I as a, as a political person uh, then also want to be very conscious of. So, so the answer is yes, definitely. And it uh, depends on the situation. Okay, your, your next uh, speaker. So uh, depending where you're yeah. going, right? <laughs> well, how many people uh, have you got already participating uh, in Germany and here now in, in London or in America? We don't, uh, we don't record for that sort of personal information. So we only know how many people have uploaded images and it's around uh, 250 or so. Uh, we know that, you know, uh, maybe you know, 700 or, or more people have looked at the site, but in terms of actual uh, uploading images to try it out, it's been about 250. But we, like I said, we don't record. When, when we are in a period where uh, there are millions of selfies published every day, that people might be overly shy, over sudden to share the image, enhancing the three factors of beauty, of happiness and, and easy life, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and, and a lot of these uh, images are very distorted. I mean, even if the upload a photograph that works really well, um, then you personally might still say, oh my God, I look awful, because is distortion in the face. So um, we found that the people we've been able to get to agree to, uh, to have their faces, their deep fakes go public, older people who are more comfortable, not as beautiful as they used to be, and, uh, and artists who, for whom perform performance and distortion and glitch mm -hmm. is part of also their, their art. Say, I would say that younger people is much more conscious about their own image and they take, I mean, their own digital image and they take a lot of care on creating that image only. So uh, they are, of course, all over the place with the selfies and all these kind of things, but all these, like each of one of those selfies has been selected and usually carefully filtered and altered. 
So even if it looks like they are completely okay and comfortable with sharing their images, it's more about they are okay about controlling what image they want to publish online. So that's a, a big difference. And in this, in this case, in, in Tamiko's work, uh, what actually she is proposing is to lose control over your own image. So that's why it makes a lot of sense also that younger people doesn't want to uh, allow us to, to use that because uh, it's a way of challenging that notion of, of, of control over your, your own digital image. Great. So um, my next question is maybe a little bit more uh, about uh, the photography and how it evolves. Can we consider that all those deep fakes um, are still photography, John? It depends who you ask and uh, in which context. I mean, I'm, I'm totally uh, in favor of the most open and widened definition of photography. Uh, also because I think that... Uh, it is photography. It's present in many other technology. It's it's a, a tool that uh, it's been in the beginning of cinema, in the beginning of uh, many other mediums. So I think that uh, when you are uh, looking at uh, film, you have to look also to the photography of the film. And when you are looking into defects, in this case, you have to also look and understand how photography works because it's on the base of like on the starting point of those uh, technologies. And also, we have to acknowledge that photography is not anymore as uh, it used to be. It's uh, mostly created uh, by computers, uh, by small computers on phones. Uh, we just have to, I mean, we do all have to acknowledge that most of the photography nowadays is created on smartphones. And the way of creating those photos is, I mean, has very little... Uh, to do with uh, how like analog photography uh, was made, uh, it's much more about algorithms and uh, and computers. In fact, it's called uh, computational photography. So, I mean, we don't have to frame photography in that in that context. Uh, the thing here is that most of the photographic institutions or uh, photographic institutions working like, with photography as art, let's say. Uh, are not focusing so much on that and uh, still like try to keep on the idea of like uh, the traditional notions of photography and don't look so much on the on the more current ways of, of producing photography. Yeah, and that's, I mean, uh, the, uh, the digital programs of the, the photographers' gallery is trying at least to, to, to go in that direction and to, to acknowledge how photography is changing technologically and, uh, and try to bring it like closer to the wider audiences who are also interested in, in, in culture, in, in, in art and in culture in relationship to, to photography. Yes. So, I mean, for me, it is photography. <laughs> All right. So as we see that uh, the technology evolves and enhances, does that mean that the skills of the photographers, are they evolving? Or Yeah, I mean, there's no other way. Uh, photography, yeah. you need a tool. It's not like, uh, I don't know, singing, that you can just sing or like dancing or any other medium. You need the tool. Without the tool, uh, there's no way of, of, of creating uh, photography unless you are creating a camera obscura, but you still need a room with a hole. Uh, so, of course, people need to, like, uh, practitioners need to, to evolve their knowledge and their skills on the technologies that they are using. Then again, photography, as I said before, I think, uh, it's a quite, uh, conservative medium and even more in the framework of art institutions and cultural institutions 
who are still thinking on traditional notions of photography. Uh, I can see how there's many people like uh, looking into these new technologies, but not so many photographers, like people who have been trained on photography per se, are looking into this. So I think that there's like a lot of work to do in that sense, and there are many skills that have to be like uh, learned by photography practitioners to learn about how all this all these new technologies are working. So. I mean, of course they are evolving, but they need, uh, particularly photographers, will need to evolve much faster and keep track of what's going on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so are we moving to uh, a much more um, software-based practice instead of lens-based? Because nowadays no one mm. can escape the Adobe suite and... and <laughs> <laughs> it's a mix. I would say it's a mix. Yeah, I mean, we still need the lenses, but uh, the lenses... Uh, bringing the light into a, a digital sensor, let's say, not to start being too technical. Uh, like a, it's a mix between a computational and lens-based uh, mm -hmm. field, and we mm -hmm. should learn about both. And mm -hmm. uh, we should like, uh, yeah, try to keep up to date, which is not easy because I recognize that uh, things evolve and move super quickly, and it's it's difficult to keep track. But uh, but yeah, I mean, definitely photography is software-based right now. Uh, okay. So we, we should be looking into that. It was interesting when I was um, um, uh, visiting artists at Duke University, uh, I don't know when that was, maybe seven years ago at this point, it was in a department that had evolved out of documentary photography, actually, originally. And so, you know, the, so there were uh, there there were a lot of like sort of old school documentary photographers who were professors, but then they had moved the department into wanting to look at. I mean, just like the photographers' gallery is the oldest gallery for photography in in London, and so it's really interesting that you know that was the, that's the gallery that's looking. For this into the future, but um, but what they what the professors said in the department was that uh, you know their students ha had all essentially so to speak grown up with um, with you know smartphone photography and certainly digital cameras where basically all you had to do is press the, the button you didn't have to set the aperture and you certainly didn't have to go into the darkroom and and they said they're so used to just being able to press a button and get a perfect uh, photo that they are really interested in things like, I forget the brand, but there's some Russian camera that's so poorly made that it, it usually has light leaks, which of course then produce all sorts of funny effects on the film and it, because it is using actual film. And so they were fascinated by these um, poorly working, again, these glitch devices that couldn't take Good photographs if he did everything right, you know. So, <laughs> so, so there's maybe like a pendulum that goes back and forth. But, um, but I think it's it's uh, it's really interesting in this age of perfect photography. Then also to say, um, let's let's look at the glitches. Let's look at where the perfect photography is showing its dirty <laughs> underwear. And, and <laughs> so we can find out more about what's really happening behind that, uh, that button or behind that cloud of software that's between us and the process. Yeah, glitches are the places many times where I like to look to the uh, real nature of digital technologies, like on the, on the like failures that they have in, the, in, the, in those kind of uh, 
yeah, those kind of like unexpected uh, problems, uh, you can see how how that technology works, and uh, it's quite useful to to look into into those like attempts that maybe haven't like achieved what they were supposed to achieve, because you can understand how how they were built and uh, what was the like the original purpose for for them, and uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah usually like perfect like perfect looking images uh make you focus just on that surface and don't allow you to go deeper and uh so depending on the case what you are looking for it's it's i mean leeches are as useful and as beautiful as as any other like perfect image following on that asks john if if he could talk about how the photographer's gallery has been really now for a couple of years and, and now this year into the future, uh, looking at uh, deep fakes, looking at data sets. Um, uh, can you give uh, the audience a little bit sure. more of an overview of, of what your program has shown in, and, and still you can get a lot of information yeah. off the internet? Uh, from your website on past programs. Yeah, uh, yeah, we've been looking into datasets, which are like the the collections of images that are used to train algorithms. So, like to to like to train an algorithm to identify a face or to to identify that there's a person in an image or this kind of things. You first need to train it in a in a dataset. So, and those datasets are usually collections of images that are like taken like downloaded from from the internet. And we've been looking into how those datasets are being created uh, by computer scientists and uh, how they are also employing uh, people like uh, the known as mechanical Turks, maybe, you know, the marketplace where people do like this, like uh, small jobs, let's say. Uh, and uh, also what's the impact of those datasets once the algorithm has been trained. So we have had like a number of, of, of commissions of works that have been shown on the on the media wall, uh, but also a large series, like a, a, a lot of uh, essays that we commission to not only artists, but also researchers and curators. And sometimes they are not like even like, um, let's say art related researchers, but uh, for instance, because uh, uh, we published an, an article of uh, how uh, the car, the German car industry, is hiring people to tag images to try and to train the algorithms that then are going to be driving the cars, the self-driving cars. Um, that's just one of the samples. Or we also had uh, Fei Li, who was um, who is still uh, a computer scientist who who built the most, I would say, influential data set. Like visual dataset ever, ImageNet, a visual dataset that has been used to train a lot of algorithms that are being used nowadays. And uh, we had her like a, we did a, a like an anniversary celebration or party, a party of the tenth birthday party of ImageNet, and she she was present there and she explained how uh, that dataset uh, was made. Also because uh, the influence of that dataset is so huge and. Uh, so unknown, I would say as well, for the most of the public that it was like really important for us to to bring her. So those are a few examples of we have done with data set match. Yeah, and it was exactly that video from uh, uh, Fei Fei that 
really amazed me to find it, you know, on your on your website because you know some of you might know that that back in the '80s I was working at an artificial intelligence company, Thinking Machines, and and I was doing you know I was doing mechanical engineering. I was doing the product design for the supercomputer, the connection machine. Uh, I wasn't doing AI research, but of course, you know, I knew. Uh, I was very well versed in what was going on then, and then that went into an AI winter when, uh, specifically, the American military stopped funding supercomputer research because they said, "Well, you know, the Berlin Wall fell. We won the war. We don't need all that money going to fighting the Soviets." And then, uh, and then, all of a sudden, in you know, 2015 or so, all of a sudden, AI pops up and everything that we had tried to do and everything that, you know, the, the connection machine was, was uh, you know, Brewster Kale who also started the Internet Archive, uh, was, was doing the first uh, full text English language, natural language searches on the connection machine and, and, uh, and navigation systems that, you know, everyone has on, on this thing. We were running the first ones on the, on the, uh, on the connection machine back in, in 84. But, um, that video on your website uh, with Feifei talking about ImageNet, and this was the point when, uh, when all of a sudden the data that was needed by neural nets to function was all of a sudden there in 2012, and then the uh, the convolutional neural networks could grab onto that and run off it with it. And that data was missing in the 80s when we were working at thinking machines. And before the social web, people were saying, you will never get millions and millions of images. Uh, you will never get that sort of data. And then, you know, the social web comes along and all of a sudden people start feeding all their images. And then, you know, Feifei collects it together in one set. And then the AI researchers grab it and go off and running. And that for me was the missing link that I hadn't known about from the, you know, the AI time in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And the current time when all of a sudden it works just exactly like we said it would back then. And how did we bridge from that time to this time over the AI winter? So I really encourage everyone who's interested in this to go and peruse uh, their their website because there's just fascinating stuff that really gives you a wonderful overview that I haven't seen in any other place. Thank you, Tomiko. So, <laughs> yeah, no, no it's been. I, I also have to say that uh, the program was started before I joined the gallery because I joined the gallery like uh, less than two years ago, and it was already started with uh, with Katina Lewis, my predecessor as, as digital curator at uh, the gallery. But I was uh, very lucky and happy. To, to join the gallery right on that time where we were starting with it as a match. And uh, yeah, and Faithfully's talk was one of the highlights, I would say, of the program. In fact, we are uh, working now on a, on a book uh, that we hopefully will publish this year with a collection of the essays that we've been publishing on Unthinking Photography, which is the name of, uh, of the platform where we publish uh, these essays, interviews, and online projects as well. So. Great. Uh, shall we invite someone from the audience to come and join us on stage to say hi or to ask a question? Hello. Hey. I, I was very, uh, I asked that question uh, a while ago, but after listening to John speak a little, I want to expand on it because I, 
I actually fa- find the piece, I know you did it before, but it's so perfect after January 6th. And in terms of the expanding <laughs> consciousness, you know, the awakening, mass awakening about the algorithmic self as the deciding, as bringing down democracy in the world. Yeah. And in the United States. So January, January 6th, the day that yeah. Trump, uh, Trump rallied his, uh, his mob to attack the Capitol to try and present them certifying right. the election. And, so, and, and they're office. scary. These things you made, you know, aren't funny. They're really scary. They're, they're, they're monsters. They're sort of yeah. flat affect yeah. puppets that are being puppeted by these political mediated political figures that are so flat them anyway. And then it's this triple flattening. So I, I found that, were you thinking about alg- a kind of critique of the algorithmic self when you produced this a couple years ago? Oh, def- definitely. I mean, it, I mean, it, it ping pongs back and forth between the algorithmic self and, you know, what are we creating or what are people creating out of us? And then, uh, and then you know, the, the pre-digital uh, um, yeah, the, the the fascist call to power, uh, you know, giving up uh, the, the self. You know, um, part of the reason that I moved to Germany in 1985 was that, uh, if you remember, the Cold War was still going on and the division between East and West Europe was running right right through Germany. So I thought, well, that's the place if I want to understand more of what has shaped at least the Western world that I've lived in, uh, then Germany is the place to find, uh, find that out. So, so of course, you know, being in, in Germany and being in, in a leftist crowd in, in Germany, then, you know, you learn a lot about, well, how did Hitler essentially take over a country? And, there was a very funny, funny phenomenon that happened when I told people in Boston, you know, so I was in the MIT uh, startup crowd in Boston, Um, of course, you know, uh, a lot of university people. And then I decided to move to Germany to, uh, to see if I could go to an art school and all sorts of stuff started coming out like Germany. It's so dark there. And, and, you know, and then the statements about, uh, you know, well, you know, of course the Germans are, fa- are naturally fascist and, and that's why they followed Hitler and <laughs> Americans are naturally good and we would never be able to do something like that. So, so yeah, I mean, Trump was really uh, the, the person who uh, showed America its dirty underwear. Of course, lots of people like, you know, the entire black community has known this for hundreds of years. But uh, now, you know, a larger portion of the white community has now understood that we are all capable of, of following, an e- <laughs> following evil. And that's, you know, and, and so for me, all of these, uh, these various selves, these political, public, algorithmic selves are all wrapped up into a very complicated. Well, uh, well also, right I now. mean, speaking of MIT, you know, the doc lab that's run by William Uricchio, who's an old friend of mine since 40 years, um, he wrote a book about 
25 or 30 years ago about Nazi television and about how significant that was uh -huh. in going into the homes of the German public in this intimate way in terms of how effective it was at brainwashing, right? The hearth, the, the talking head, etc. And so likewise, uh, Facebook. So, you know, which we need the, with this rising tide of realism, hyper-realism. And, and that's sort of what I wanted to ask you about, John, because I'm biased. So I only work with uh, simulations technologies. Uh -huh. So do you, or do you folks think we do photography? I do. I think that photography is involved in your, in your uh, work process. Uh, I don't think uh, that uh, any medium can be uh, defined like purely, like this is pure photography or this is pure uh, new media art or meta art or these kind of things. Uh, but I do believe that uh, photography is involved uh, in your work process and, and therefore it has to be also like thought and, uh, and worked and uh, it could be also included in, uh, in an institution that uh, is working uh, with photography and it, that in our case has photography in its own title even as a photographer's gallery, uh, <laughs> which is our name. So yeah, I mean, of course. <laughs> in short, yes. Yes. <laughs> Amigues. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and also in relationship to what you were asking, well, uh, Tamiko was talking before, I think that in her work, particularly in this work, there's a mix between like uh, the desire of trying that tool and also the like being afraid of trying it because you know that it's going to be playing with you. But there's this mix between like the desire of, of wanting to, to try new technology that happens every time that someone announces a new engaging technology and also uh, uh, being kind of afraid of using it at the same time. And the tension between those two poles is quite interesting and something that happens um, and we've seen happening many times, like with other applications that we've seen being published recently, like the face app, the one that got you like older, uh, that everyone wanted to try it. And then everyone realized that the data that they were harvesting, it was being used for, for another purpose. No, it's like there's always this desire of, of playing with the tool and at the same time certain like, uh, I don't know, uh, like being afraid of, of using it at the same time. And uh, that's something that I think that Tamiko's work, particularly this project, explores pretty well. So that's pretty diabolical of you, Tamiko. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. what are artists supposed to do? Look who's talking about diabolical, Claudia. <laughs> I would like to, to thank you for this intense conversation about uh, your, your project. I really wish that uh, we are going out of lockdown very soon so uh, London can go <laughs> and invade the photographer's gallery. And so oh, well, thank wonderful. you so much for uh, joining uh, the, the talk.